Once again, let me say thank you, Danielle and Tony, for allowing me to participate in this very special occasion with you today. Um, when I came to Great Little Zion, I think Danielle was a teenager. And one of the uh, marvelous gifts of being a pastor is uh, you get a chance to see individuals sometimes born and then grow up to become teenagers. And if you have a long ministry, you get to see them to become adults. Uh, you come into a ministry and you get to catch children when they are adolescents and you get to grow up and see them become teenagers and then become young adults and go off to be adults as well. And that has been my privilege with Danielle as a teenager and now she's off with her own life, married and developing her own family. And uh, this is her home church and I count it a privilege to be able to dedicate your child today. So thank you so much for doing it for me. I appreciate it. Amen. Would you join me in the book of Proverbs chapter 15 and verses 31 and 32? Uh, we will be working out of two separate texts today. That is a homiletical violation, but we're going to be all right. Uh, we're going to do Proverbs chapter 15 first, and then I'm going to read just four verses from the Song of Solomon chapter 1. But first, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 31 and 32. Word of the Lord. He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. And then if you would turn two books over to the right, you will be at the Song of Solomon, chapter one, and I wanna read just the first four verses. We actually will only deal with verse one today because this is the foundational message. We're gonna take a journey through the book of the Song of Solomon as we talk about being relational, period. Most preachers, sermons, uh, addressing out of the Song of Solomon are generally about only the marital relation. And although that is certainly a critical theme in the book, but the book highly suggests to us various principles in terms of just being relational alone. And what I'm hoping to do is to give to you, whether you are single, whether you are uh, in a relationship and not yet considering engagement, or whether you are at a point where you are engaged, whether you are married but newly married, somewhere between one, five years, or whether you are seasoned, and by season I mean plenty, 20 plus years. Uh, there are some of us in here who have been 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, some 50 years, and maybe even 60 years. There is still a word in here for you, even in your season, advanced years. So hear the word of the Lord. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The song of songs, which is Solomon's, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance, your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you 
and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. The Song of Solomon often draws somewhat a blank stare by some who attempt to expound on the text, uh, mainly because some of the language in the context uh, may be described as a bit erotic, uh, and it may be described as a bit too personal for the public forum as we have now in the sanctuary. I would wholeheartedly disagree because when you speak of words that are erotic, if you understand them in the context to which they are being proclaimed, uh, you can grasp not only a better understanding of what is being conveyed, uh, but one can minimize the negative effect of what eroticism can do to an individual. I have entitled this entire series that I'm going to do in the Song of Solomon, I've given it the title that I borrowed from Peebo Bryson, I'm So Into You. And I call it that because unless you are a child of the 70s as I am, I was 15 years old, I think it was around 76, 77, somewhere in there when people came out with this song. It, it was the song to learn that you might woo every woman that you came in contact with. Now, I'm going to tell you some things that was I.E. before Barbara. So just let me, let me make sure I make that clear. This is I.E. before before Miss Murphy. Uh, this is even before church, before Jesus, okay? Won't be anything bad, but I, I, just, I just want you to know. So when I first heard people, people Bryson to us at that time was the Luther Vandross to us in the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, he had the voice that was just unbelievable. I'm not quite sure what voice he sings in. Was it, is that alto? Tenor, some, some tenor alto, yeah. Uh, but, but when he's singing, it, I mean, and as a young man, you were looking for tools to use to find a way to woo every girl you came in contact with. And so when I started reading through the Song of Solomon, I decided to revisit the lyrics of I'm So Into You. And so, you know, he starts out by saying, close your eyes and I'll love. I would sing it for y'all, but I want everybody to stay holy while we're in church. So I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to repeat the lyrics. Uh, so he says, close your eyes and I'll love you. I'll make a smile down inside you. I'm so into you, don't know what I'm going to do because I care for you, care for you. Close your eyes, girl, you got me. Even if it's wrong or right, the world can't stop me. I'm so into you. Y'all know, you, you get to legit something. Then he got a line that says, love will heal your broken heart. What is it? Love will heal 
your broken heart yesterday. I'm so in love with you. I don't know what I'm going to do. I am yours. You are mine. I'm so glad I found you. Good God Almighty. Anyway, uh, so I start thinking about those lyrics and the depth that they made connection to the verbiage that's conveyed in the Song of Solomon. Uh, some scholars suggest that Solomon may not actually be the writer of the entire book, and I, I would probably agree. If you read chapter 3 and you identify verse 7, 9, and 11, one might conclude that Solomon is indeed the compiler of the book. But if you get to chapter 8 and you start reading through several different verses, you might conclude otherwise. But let me suggest that actually the Song of Solomon is really nothing more. In fact, I, I wouldn't even really always call it. And if you would notice, if you read different translations, they don't always call it the Song of Solomon. Some call it the Song of Songs. And that's because it is really nothing more than a compilation of love poems. That's all it is, love poems that one person is writing about to the person who has actually grasped and saturated their heart to the point where they convey in their own language, I'm so into you, don't know what I'm going to do. We have a problem with really trying to say that Solomon is the writer of the entire book based on verse 1 of chapter 1. And there is a preposition there used that highly suggests that it's different in the Hebrew than it actually is in English. So in English, it says the song of song which is Solomon's. Well, the preposition which is in the Hebrew doesn't necessarily mean that it has reference to the person or the noun to which it identifies after. It may suggest that it's only a reference to that noun, which means it may not have been Solomon who actually wrote, but it may have been Solomon who gave information to the writer who compiled the book. But let me give you a couple of things that actually I think the writer of the poem is trying to convey unto us. And that is that uh, the book is primarily about A, being relational, uh, because he is highly suggesting that if you're going to be involved uh, in a one-on-one -on -one relationship with someone that goes beyond friendship, you really need to understand what the word relation means. Secondly, there are a number of questions that the book really brings up to challenge us to ask if we are going to be involved in relationships with people. Now, let me suggest that there may be, and I think there are more than what I'm going to tell you, but there's at least four good types of relationship that we may have. The first is being personal relationships. And all of us probably have personal relationships because by that I mean uh, we may have a relationship with our doctor, with our dentist, with our mechanic, we may have a, a relationship with a coworker, with an employer, with a teammate, with the pastor. Those are personal relationships that are on a equal ground. And by equal ground, I mean we, we are here in the sense that we share things, but what we share may be limited. 
Then there's a second relationship I call deepening relationships. And deepening relationships uh, happens to involve uh, the process of growing, the process of developing, the process of expanding. Uh, no relationship can, can, can grow without walking through a process. And that process can involve various different kinds of characteristics, but hopefully all of us are involved at some point in time in deepening relationships where we go beyond the surface level of who people are and there may be that one special person that we want to know more deeper issues or questions that we may have for that person. All of these are, have biblical reflections in the personal relationship. Uh, you can see that clearly in the life of Jesus because although he has 12 disciples, there are three that just seems to be more personal to him, Peter, James, and John. They, they are the close-knit group that Jesus seems to spend an extensive amount of time with, so much so that when you read the gospel narratives, he shares information that apparently is not shared with the other disciples. The deepening relationship can be identified when you watch how uh, Jesus, again, works through the ministries and gets to know those three disciples more deeper than he does the others. Then there is what I call supportive relationships, and supportive relationships are those that may involve uh, us being in relation with other people, and we are more or less to them helpers, burden bearers, load bearers, individuals who give them assistance, uh, more like the Holy Spirit who comes alongside, the parakletos, who assists who gives directions. We have no intentionality of actually seeking anything for self-gratification. Everything is pouring out from us into the person and making deposits. So I say to you, as I said to the earlier church, it's important that you understand that if you are involved with anyone and all they are doing is, is withdrawing and never making deposits in your spirit, you might want to cut that relationship. It's just not worth having because eventually they will withdraw until they draw everything out of you. And in banking terms, when they come back to draw again, it will say insufficient funds. Because you no longer have anything to give them because they've drawn it all out of you. And so what you are looking for in supportive relationship is actually the very opposite. You are the individual who's actually depositing into someone else's life and not actually looking for anything in return. And that's the juxtaposed position that God places for us in the word of God. You never go seeking to receive, you always go to give. And so the promise from God's word is that when you have that kind of attitude, give and it shall be given back unto you. Pressed down, shaking together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. Now, that takes a kind of relationship that develops over time. So supportive relationships don't just happen overnight. 
It takes some time. Those are the kind of people that when you get the bad news from the doctor, you call them outside of calling the Lord. For those of you that's real spiritual, here's what I'm trying to help you understand. Uh, After talking to the Lord, you call these persons because you know no matter what news you get, this person has something productive to say and something productive to deposit in you. Context now you find yourself in is bad. They somehow take that negativity and show you the positivity within it and so they are constantly pouring into you and even to make matters even glorious these are the persons who will go with you to chemotherapy who will go with you for the exam who will travel 200 miles when your car breaks down you have nobody else to call on they will leave where they are to come find you because they have that kind of support for your life those are the persons that you pour into and in return they give you what you need in return so you have personal relationships deepening relationships supportive relationships you find that by looking at the life and ministry of Paul and Timothy or Elijah and Elisha, or Moses and Joshua, or Joshua and Aaron. You find these kinds of supportive means. And and hear me clearly, no one was created to be an isolated island. That means that all of us have within us the innate desire to want to be involved with someone else, interaction with someone else, communicating with someone else. We were not meant to be alone. So if you go back and read Genesis chapter 2 and 3, when God creates man, God recognizes out of Genesis 1 that man in, in, in his aloneness says the writer, it was not good. So what does God do? Gives him a deep divine anesthesia that puts him to sleep and pulls out of him a rib. And he creates Ish, a woman. And by creating the woman, when Adam woke up and noticed that Eve existed, his declaration was, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, he recognized I was not meant to be alone because when I saw someone who resembled me, I got excited. And that's what relationships are about. When you find that person or when you know those persons in your life, you get excited about seeing them because they are now a part of who you are. And they become the supportive and it deepens and it's personal. Then there's a final one. There's what I call faith-building relationships and faith building relationships are those that we develop along the way whether it be in church or out of church those individuals have reference to our Christian walk with God they help us grow in the Lord they are willing to be honest with us they will tell it like it is unto us they will not see us in a sinful uh, degrading or an immoral state and leave us there But they will look at us and say, by the grace of God, we're coming out of where you are and we're going to reposition you to be where you're supposed to be and where you need to be, which is being giving glory to God that God is using you in a very mighty way. They are also willing to tell me when I'm not being honest with myself. 
So there are times when I don't like to look in the mirror because if I look in the mirror, that means I would only see one person. And that person I'm going to see in the mirror is me. But they are willing to stand at a distance and watch me not watch myself in the mirror. And at the same time, tell me, you need to really look at yourself. And I'm only telling you this because I love you and I care about you and you are important to me. And as a result, they are once again feeding into me, depositing into me that I may recognize who I am in the person of Jesus Christ. And we need faith-building relationships. When you read the book of James, there's a line there where James tells us to confess your faults one to another. Now, what James is really trying to get at is uh, you really need to make sure whomever you confess your faults to, make sure they have your best interests at hand. Because if they don't, whatever that fault is, it may become public news. But if they really have your heart and life at you know, at the way in which they are really caring about you, not only will no one ever know about it, but they will help navigate you through that position called restoration. Because they are willing to hear. And, and, and they will not be uh, negative in terms of criticism. Now, there are a number of ways that one can receive criticism, and not all criticism is bad criticism. In fact, you want productive criticism. You, you want criticism that creates growth. But one cannot handle the consistency of negative criticism once an ailment or an issue in their life has been revealed. They need someone who will be honest with them and tell them that, yep, what you did was, was wrong and it's a mess. And you may be in a mess, but we're going to get out of this mess. We're going to use the word of God, we're going to use prayer, and we're going to use togetherness. So you will find if you travel through the New Testament, there is like 160 plus uh, usages of the phrase one another. And that's there to remind us of how important it is that we understand the need of having faith-building relationships pray one for another, sing with one another suffer with one another. Everything's about one another because God knows that there are moments in our life when we can't handle it by ourselves, but we need some help. And we need some help where a person may be critical, but the criticism is in the mode of developing me. And if that's the case, then I will welcome that kind of criticism because I know it has the idea of being for my good. So the book is about relationships. Now listen closely. If Solomon, and I think he is, is the writer of a great deal of the book of Proverbs, then what we want to do is adhere very closely to his suggestion in terms of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 31 and 32. And here is what he says, translation James Murphy. It's, it's a good thing if you are willing to listen to good advice. If you're willing to listen to good advice, then we will list you among the wise. But if you are unwilling to listen to good advice, then you're actually despising your own soul. 
And in doing that, you will only demise yourself and you will eventually find yourself in a state of regret. Now, we live in an age where uh, the test of wisdom, or should I say the test um, of whether or not a person's integrity is real, uh, is almost, I suggest, at an all-time low. And uh, we happen to have a climate that really doesn't enjoy the profit and the benefit of those uh, who have silver hair and who have the battle scars of life and who's been through some wars and who's walked through the winds of adversity. In fact, I would contend that one of the challenges we have is those of us who are millennials and whatever the next proper uh, social description is, uh, we, we, we have failed you, those of us, I should say, who are baby boomers, who come from the generation who, who understood the meaning of self-dignity. We failed the millennials by not conveying the wisdom that we got from the generation before us. And as a result now, uh, they don't care much about the wisdom we have to provide because now they are in the learning mode to learn from those who are not of the same construct. And as a result, they will seek that direction elsewhere. And here's a problem that might pose. All information is contextual. All information is cultural. So one set of cultural lens doesn't see the same information as another set of cultural lens. And whatever cultural lens you happen to be a descendant of, it is wise for you to learn through that culture because that's where you got to live. That's where you got to continue to exist. That's where your nurture is going to come from. And I believe that we have failed to help you understand that there's a lot of wisdom in those who have gray hairs among us. And we haven't tapped into it. And as a result of that, we've left our younger generation in the wilderness trying to discover which direction should we go, only noticing that they are stepping on landmines that we already knew existed in the wilderness because we've already traveled in that wilderness. But we have yet to come back and help them see in our own schematics of the landscape how you can avoid the landmines in the wilderness. Talking about being relational. And not only should we, and remember, all relations should be reciprocal. So let me just say to young people, those of us who are old and we've been married for a long time, it, it, we already got used to it. Anyway, um, if you're young, you don't want anyone in your life where you're giving and they're not giving back. I need to say it again because I didn't get nothing on that one. If, if you are in a relationship and you are giving and, and they're not giving back, you need to move on. Because being relational is reciprocal. Remember that principle I read for you earlier about Jesus? Give and it should be given back to you. Now, let's go back to the Proverbs. 
Uh, he that desires friends must first show himself friendly. So in other words, there's a suggestion in that principle alone that if you want friends, friendship is reciprocal by you giving it and then in return, you receiving it. Being in a relationship, if you are the one who's giving all the attention to the details, giving all the time to try to find out about that person, listen, if you are involved in somebody and they don't act, if all they care about is your physicality, you need to just drop them right where they're at and move on. Because you as a human being is more than what you look like physically. But if that person doesn't try to find out what's in you, What's in your mind? What are your goals of life? Where you are? If that person doesn't care anything about that, all they want is what they can get from you physically, you need to cut them out. That's not being very reciprocal at all. And I get tired of seeing young sisters give themselves to brothers who don't care a hill of beans about them. And they know it. They know it. He's supposed to be in a relationship with you and he got five others. And you know it. You already know it. You've seen it. I mean, is, that, is that proper English? You've seen it? No. You saw it. <laughs> Repeatedly. And he just come back over the next day, knock on the door, and you give him your attitude, and he just say the right things, and touch the right spaces, and you just fall to pieces. Take a page from old school. Look him straight in the eye. Take the door, and tell him, May this door hit you right where the good Lord split you. See ya. Oh, young people, deuces. Oh, Obama, I'm out. That's about what you need to do. That's not reciprocal. I say, get beyond. I'm, here it is. I'm going to show you right here in the text. Let, let's listen to Proverbs 15, verse 31. You are smart if you listen to good wisdom. The English translation, English translation is the word. Let me make sure I got it right. English translation is the word in the text where it says life-giving reproof. But the Hebrew word for reproof, reproof is not in the Hebrew, the word replaced there is a word that says for the straightening of the crooked stick. Now, now the question is, how do you straighten a crooked stick? Because the idea in the Hebrew and the concept is uh, when you meet someone, it's a linear thing. And by being linear over time, Time in itself softens the marrow in the stick or the nurture in the stick where it begins to sink on either side. And when it begins to sink, it then forces those who are holding the stick to make a decision. Which way are we going? 
Are we going that way to production or are we going this way to destruction? You force the person, if you got to be in a relationship with someone for 20 years, I'm talking about dating. 20 years and you still dating? 20 years and you still dating? We need to make some decisions. And this is a brother thing. Most brothers do this. We'll drag that thing out for years. Non-committal. Don't want to relinquish the possibility of merely having one, but think that they the mad daddy by having many. And here's the interesting thing about life. Uh, all of us, I, I, I don't care how much Geritol, Viagra you take, it don't matter. And the worst thing is to get in the evening of your years and you are all alone. That is the worst thing can happen to you. And you can't make a decision because you're fearful for whatever reason. So this text says you are wise if you listen to counsel that will help you straighten out the rod. You are unwise if you reject it because then you are actually depending on your own wisdom and that could be detrimental. So relationships should be reciprocal, watch this, but relationships also should be respectful. If, if you are involved with someone and they have absolutely very little to no respect of you, then you need to cut that, it's like a cancer, you need to cut that out of your life. I've counseled enough to see and I've, I've known enough to see where people constantly give respect and get none in return. Talking about reciprocal and we're talking about being respectful. Now we might want to debate and we can debate what do we mean by being respectful. And in a very simplistic way I would suggest that means that I, I must be willing to honor who you are but I can't do that until I know who you are. Which means that we need to ask some questions when we talk about being more than in friendship with somebody. Questions like, who is you? What do you do? What do you like? What do you know? Oh, can you talk? Can you carry on a conversation? Can you avoid uh, colloquium or, or ghetto, ghetto slang language like, you know what I'm saying? Can you actually read? Do you actually know how to understand the sensitivity areas in the mental composition of a woman? Do you know that a man is not driven by his auditory senses or even the senses of his, uh, of his emotions, but he's driven by his physical touch? A man's vision is physical. Everything he's, he got to see, everything he's involved with. That's what excites him. He see a naked woman, he fall to pieces. Good God Almighty. 
See, a woman doesn't respond like that because a woman is emotionally, because she doesn't know who that is running that kitchen. I want to see it. Ooh, that's gross. Because she is more interested in connecting. That's what it means to be relational, interconnected. And when you talk about being respectful, that means that I'm trying to connect to you enough to know what's happening in the internal state of who you are. So where do you work? What do you do? What are your hobbies? What's your favorite X, Y, Z? What do you like? Where do you like to go? Do you take vacations? What makes you excited? What gives you comfort? What makes you excited? What gives you strength? What gives you encouragement? What are the things you like to have done to you? What are the things you like to have done for you? Are you a person who likes to be surprised? Simple questions, brothers. Find out, sisters, if he knows how to do it. Now, sisters, you need to tighten up your game as well. Don't just launch yourself out there into the deep because you've been single for the last five years. So what? Better to be single than, than to be attached to somebody and miserable. Here it is. Respectful enough to know who I am and to know what psychologically and emotionally is going on in my life. Care about me. Respect me. Don't ask me to do things that are ungodly, that violate my particularity. If you, if you allow someone to make you do something that you don't want to do, you've given them control of your mental capacity. And they no longer have respect for you. That's the reason why we use uh, words to describe individuals that are not good. Because we have no respect for them. But it's not just reciprocal and respectful. I'm going to give you one more, then I'm going to let you go. Responsible. Is the person I'm involved with responsible? And it's a good thing about sisters now when we talk about relationship. All of this is in the Song of Solomon. I'm just trying to give you a foundation as to what we're going to look at as we move through this book. Uh, responsibility. Sisters now, they finally caught on. They, they got it. They, they want to know, where do you work? And because you drive, well, first of all, because you look good, okay, that's good. That's good that you look good. Now, where do you work? Do you have any money in your pocketbook? What's your credit score? Where do you live? Because if you drive in the S500 and you still at your mom and daddy house, I got some concerns about that. Do you have any other kids that I don't know about? Do you pay child support if you got other kids? I'm, I'm, listen, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about being responsible. Do you go to work every day? And what do you do in your spare time? 
Is it okay if I, if I ask you about your previous three or four relationships? Because I want to know, and if I run a check on you, am I going to come back with some felonies on your record? Am I going to see a mugshot? If so, if you can explain to me, we make it work through that. But See, sisters, getting, they're getting the hang of it now. They're starting to ask these questions. Brothers, you need to get the hang of it too. You need to start asking questions. Like, if you got three children and three different baby daddies, what am I going to have to worry about if we out on a date and we happen to run into one of them? Are they gang members? Are they gang banging? Is he the jealous type? Am I going to have to worry about him calling you all hours of the night asking the dumbest questions? I'm talking about being in relation and I'm talking about being responsible. Here's a good one. What's your vision for the future? If I'm going to be in a relationship with you, what do you see us five years from now? What's your expectation? That's right here in the Song of Solomon. All those questions are in the Song of Solomon. They are both inferred as well as boldly stated throughout the book. And that's the challenge for us, is to make sure that being in relation, it's reciprocal, it's respectful, and that it's responsible. And I'm going to give you one more. I lied. I got one more to give you. And that it's reliable. Am I going to be able to depend on you if life takes a turn for me? Are you going to be there? Or if I have to go and take care of my sick parent and I may be out of the pocket for several months, are you going to freak out? Are you going to think that I'm having an affair, doing something crazy with somebody else? Or are you going to come and try to find out where I'm at with my mama or my dad? Are you going to pay a visit? Or are you going to offer some help with my mom and my daddy? To young people, you don't think those things happen, but here, here's, here's what does. Life has such unexpected moments. And see, today, here it is, today, you are full of health and vitality, and you are vibrant, and tomorrow you wake up and you have no mobility at all. Something has happened to your nervous system. Something has happened to your spinal cord, and all of that physical beauty, that physicality you had that he fell in love with might go out the window because you can no longer move. Will he still love you? Can you still rely on him to be in your life when that happens? You can today be 20, 25 and have a stroke. And if that stroke affects you where some of your motor skills doesn't come back, will he or she still want to be a part of your life? Talking about reliability. It's right here in the story. Right here in the story. Now, here's my closing word. I want to say this to you and then I'm going to let you go. Um, this is not for those of you who are conservative, orthodox, classical Christians. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, when you believe, when you read the Bible, you, le you read it literally and you believe it literally just as it is. Th this is not for you, but this, this is going to blow your theology all out the window. But this is for those of us who are progressive thinkers 
and who read scripture through various hermeneutical eyes. That means we look at not just one mode of interpretation, but we look at several. And so let me shock you like I did at 8 o'clock this morning. Uh, when you read the, the biblical couples in the Bible, uh, I'm not convinced you're going to find the most astute examples to follow, i.e. case in point. So uh, we like to talk about the greatness of Jacob, how Jacob wrestled with the angel and how Jacob, of course, is the father of the 12 sons who became the 12 tribe of Israel. Uh, we see all the great things about Jacob. But here's what we don't talk about. Jacob got 12 sons by four, not four, four different women. Two of them are sisters. And the other two are handmaidens for the two sisters. The father of the 12 tribes, but Brahman got four baby mamas. Or Abraham. No, if you know, oh, oh, I forgot to tell you. So Jacob is married to Rachel and Leah, who is the daughters of Laban, who is Jacob's father's brother. So that means that Jacob is married to his own cousins. Let's go backwards. Abraham and Sarah, but Abraham is married to his half-sister, Sarah. I'm just trying to tell you, I, I'm, you, 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 one thing the Bible does is it doesn't give us details about how these families live. How do these family dynamics function? We just get the good stuff that Abraham is the father of many nations, and, and, and Abraham uh, uh, goes up to Mount Moriah to offer his son. But we don't get the details of how these functions worked out. And Abraham, you know, has another baby mama by the name of Hagar. And the story goes on and on and on and on. And I'm trying to say that to say I'm grateful that none of the biblical characters are up here. But they're all right here where I'm standing which gives us equal eye ground, which means that they certainly were no more perfect than I was. And I know I'm not perfect, so therefore that renders them imperfect. And as a result, I can try to learn some principles from their family mistakes. And I just, I, I threw this out there at eight o'clock and I'm just gonna do it now. I don't, I don't think I'm gonna get any takers, but I'll just give it a shot. Uh, I, I just kind of wondered, Solomon also is not the best example to look for in terms of how to have a good relationship. I know we got these poems in the Song of Solomon, which he, he did write some of them, but, but let's, just, let's just look at some facts. So uh, I think it's 1 Kings 11, or it could be 2 Kings, I think it's 1 Kings 11. Uh, verse 2 says he had 700 wives. In fact, it starts to tell you the demise. It may be 2 Kings 11. It starts to tell you the demise of Solomon. So he has 700 wives. Now, I've had one for 35 years. Um, I'm just saying. 
Um, yeah, because I got to go home after service is over with. So here, here's what I want to say. If he got 700 wives, let's, let's do the math. And we're going to use the Roman calendar that we use, 365 days a year. So 365 times 2, what's that? Mathematicians. Ms. Pius, mathematician. What's, what's 365 times 2? Is that 730? So that means only one wife or each wife got one day with Solomon. So the wife on, hypothetically, January 1, 2018, won't have anything to do with Solomon, I would assume, anymore until January 1st, 2020. Now, I don't know if I got many wives in here that would be takers of allowing your man to have uh, for the next 729 uh, days somebody else. Uh, maybe y'all polygamous. I, I, I don't know. But I don't know no woman who's going to say, once in two years, you're going to see me? Uh-uh. Solomon had 700 wives, says the text, and 300 concubines extras. Now, we, we know, we know, we know from, from very good exegesis that, that these marriages were not for love. They were political maneuvering. They were just pawns on the chessboard uh, to put Solomon in a position where, because if you read uh, Solomon's history, uh, he has very little to no wars at all. And that's because he has the political power. He has all of the allies. He has everything in check. And he did this by marrying these different wives. But notice if you read 2 Kings 11, it says, but doing that, these wives turned him away from his God. And I said that to say, once again, we have admirable suggestions by these characters, but we also are charged to learn from their mistakes. And I, I, I won't even ask, I won't even ask Ms. Murphy, I won't even ask her if she would let me have 729 <laughs> other wives. I won't, even, I won't even look her direction. I won't even, I won't say anything. Because I already know the answer. Ain't that right, baby? You, you wouldn't let me have them, though, would you? No chance at all? You'd be number one. Still no good. So this is what we have to look for in the Song of Solomon. I read the first four verses uh, because the first four verses gives us a response of the Shunammite woman and whomever she was. Uh, some texts say that she was a maiden, which meant that her, her status in society was, was low, low to none. Probably meant she was more of poverty, more of a servant in the castle of the king. And she may have taken approach. Here's the interesting thing. If Solomon, and some argue that by the time that Solomon puts together these poems in this text, he doesn't have 700 wives. He has maybe about 160 or maybe a few more. 
But even with 160, uh, how is it that he catches the eye or she catches the eye of the king of this one particular maiden? And when you read the first four, four verses of chapter one, you hear her response. And they obviously have something going on because she says in her own language, when she looks at him, she says, may he kiss me. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Uh, for, for his love is better than wine and his oil has a pleasing fragrance. Now, this will become important. We'll talk about this next Sunday because there's some things you won't learn about a person uh, until you marry them. And this is for those, uh, those who, who don't live together before marriage. You're going to find some interesting things out. I tell couples the first two years are going to be interesting because when you marry somebody you've never lived before, you're going to find out a lot of stuff that you didn't know. You're going to finally find out they don't change their undergarments every day, but they, they do it every other day. You, you're going to find out where they take their clothes off. That's just where they stay until the next day comes along. You're going to find out they don't bathe every day. They bathe maybe once or twice a week. You, you find all that. See, when they come to see you on the day, they all cleaned up. But when you live with them jokers, you find a whole lot of stuff out. And see, them first two years is adjusting time. Then I tell them the next two, that's why I tell couples, if you make it to five years, it's a good chance y'all going to be in it for the long haul. Because the first two years, you got to adjust. You're you, you going to find out things about your, about your wife that you, you didn't know. That happened before. I, I didn't realize she don't cook or she don't wash dishes or I, I didn't realize none of that. I didn't realize she don't wash clothes or she don't clean up or I, none of that. Because every time we met for a date, she was always the bum. But now that I live with her, I didn't realize she didn't hang, she didn't hang her clothes up in the closet. But they all over the bed, all over the bed. Didn't realize that. So you get through the first two years, that's an adjustment. The next two years is a matter of whether or not I want to stay in this thing. I got to figure out, do I want to continue with this fool or not? Because they, 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 I don't know. Then you get to the fifth year and you've weeded out those four years and you're able to move forward. Those of us who've been married for a long time, 35 years plus, we've seen all that. We try to forget all of those earlier years, uh, and we only want to share them with our children so that they don't walk in the same mistakes that we made. You don't know that there are certain things that this person says that they didn't say while y'all was dating because all the language and all the conversation was about good stuff tell you how sweet you are, how much he loves you, and how beautiful you are, how sexy you are, how I, oh, I just can't live without you. I'm so into you. I don't know what I do. But he didn't know that you don't know how to separate your work stress and leave it there. And when he home waiting on you, you get home, he found out, he thought his wife was coming through the door, and Chucky came through the door. <laughs> he said, baby, how you doing? Because she's stressed out from work. You're looking like, what in the world? 
Baby, did I do something wrong? Leave me alone. Is that Chucky? That's Jason. Jason came to the door. Because I've been there. That's how I know it. <laughs> not you, Barbara. Not you. I'm going to let you go. So here's what time teaches you. I, I know, I know when Barbara comes to the door and she hasn't had a good day. I already know it. See, because I now, out of 35 years, I know her demeanor. I know the language that she speaks when she comes through the door. I know the walk that she walks. I know when it's not a good time to talk to her right now. Leave her alone. Give her some time. Give her her space. And then after you've been married as long as we have, space is a good thing. Yeah, we like it. Yeah. I mean, I want y'all to understand, we've been married for 35 years, but I mean, I'm not going to lie to you, and I don't think she wants me to lie to you. All those 365 days of each year, uh, I, I won't always hugging and kissing on Miss Murphy. There were some days that uh, if she wanted to go off and stay for a long, 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 long period of time. And there were some days when I left to go out of town, I'm sure she was mighty happy. Thank goodness that Negro is gone. <laughs> See her shaking her head? See that right there? Confirmation. See that? I'm, it's, 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 getting, it's, it's a part of being interconnected. Now, once she's gone for an extended period of time, I, I, I want her to get back quickly. Because I don't care what we go through. That's my baby right there, boy. That's my boo. That's my baby. 35 years girlfriend been traveling with me. That, that woman there has tolerated a lot of crap from me. And still hung. Don't say amen about that, baby. And still hung in there with me. So I'm just trying to, it, it's, it's in this book. And it helps us understand the strength of what happens when you're in relationships with longevity. And it doesn't happen overnight. All my couples in here who've been married 30 plus years, we can raise our hand and tell you, it don't happen overnight. It takes trial, error, being up sometimes, being down sometimes. It takes being angry, being happy, being glad, sorrow, but it brings us together. And we wouldn't live without each other because we got that connection. Let us pray. Lord, consecrate this moment in which thy word, in the words of the psalmist, reminds us this is the day that you have made. We are rejoicing and we're glad in it. Salvation has come to this house and I pray today, although the text makes no reference directly to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, yet there are shadows there that remind us of how important it is to know the Son.